Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You've already heard a lot of things this morning. God has definitely already spoken to us. And I'm going to now encourage you, challenge you to stay with me and continue to listen for the voice of God. I believe that God has something he wants to say and This sermon is not orphaned from everything else you've heard, but I think it's thematically very much related to all the things we've already heard God say to us this morning. The title of the message is Overflow, Cultivating a Generous Spirit in Us. And the text is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. I'd like to just read through that with you. And now, brothers... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, Finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. It's the word of God. I got to tell you, there is so much here that I found it virtually impossible to make one sermon out of this. And I was at first going to split into a series, but I'm just going to give it to you all in one time, and I'm just going to cut out a lot of stuff and and stick to what I think are the most important things we should see here. Generosity is a funny thing, isn't it? We all want to be more generous. I've rarely met somebody who said, my goal in life is to be more and more stingy as time goes by. We want to be more generous, and when we are generous, the truth is we kind of feel good about it most of the time, don't we? But even as we're experiencing the joy of generosity, There is a mixed feeling, a tension that rises up in us because there's another nagging, competing voice that tells us about the opportunity cost of that money. 
Do you realize what else you could have done with that money? Who else could have received it or what you could have bought for yourself? Do you realize you worked hard for that and now it's just out the door? And though we want to quiet that voice, it's always just lurking there under the surface if we're honest about it. And so if you're like me, you can have mixed feelings about generosity. There is joy on the one hand, but this uneasiness on the other. And that's the nature of it. What's interesting that in the New Testament, one of the words, the Greek words that is used for rich generosity is the word haplotes. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because I'm not Greek, but I think that's the way it's pronounced. It means generosity, but another equal meaning of that word is single-mindedness or an undivided heart. What's the relationship between those two concepts? I think it is this, that as we grow in spiritual maturity, our generosity will be marked by that competing voice, that tension becoming less and less. And as we give, we're not just smiling and pretending that we're joyful in the giving, but we are genuinely becoming more and more joyful as we give of ourselves to someone else. See, every time we give now, there's tension, but with maturity, what will happen is that we will genuinely rejoice in the opportunity to give of ourselves to other people. And that's really what this passage is about. I need to set just a small bit of historical context so you know what occasioned the writing of this letter. The Christian movement began with Jewish converts who, to, who started following Jesus in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area called Judea. And then they were scattered through persecution and through the missionary journeys of men like the Apostle Paul so that the church spread all over the region and into Asia Minor. And one of the places Paul went was a place called um, Macedonia. I don't know if you can see it, but this green area on the bottom right is where Jerusalem and Judea is. And up in the upper left corner in that green is where Macedonia is. And then a little further south in that other green area, I don't know if you can see it, is where Corinth is. Those are the people receiving this letter. So Paul planted three churches in, in Macedonia, in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those are the three cities. And they, th those people in that region are notoriously poor. They're scandalously poor. But when famine and severe persecution broke out down here in the south, a call went out to all the scattered Christians, can you help us? We are starving to death. Our children are starving to death. And we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the region. Can you send help? And the word went out everywhere. And then little by little from the different outposts of the Christian movement, word came back, yes, we will help. And people began to make pledges as churches. We will send this amount. We will send that amount. And there was great encouragement in Judea and in Jerusalem as that word came back that our brothers and sisters all over the region, for them all over the known world, were going to rise up and respond to our calls for help. If you've traveled the world and met other Christians in very um, destitute places, you know that that gratitude they express to you is so genuine. It's such an encouragement for them to know that their brothers in faraway places heard the cry, listened to God, and now they're on the march and they're going to help. But what happened was that the Corinthians in the south early on made a lot of noise about, man, we got a lot of money. We're going to help you with all this stuff. We're going to send this. And they sent a few things early on, but then life happened, and they kind of forgot about that strong inspiration and conviction they felt so that a year later, there was no more follow-through. But in the meantime, the Macedonian churches who were notoriously poor, 
had given everything they possibly could. And so Paul now is writing a letter to the richer cousins down there in the south, reminding them through this little friendly competition, hey, by the way, you know those, uh, those people up in the north who are really poor? They have already outgiven you. Maybe you can be encouraged to follow through on the commitment you made. So I want to share with you some principles that will help us see a, a genuine spirit of generosity cultivated in our hearts. And the first principle is that a generous spirit often flows out of pain. Out of pain. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2. Paul uses very strong language to describe the poverty of the people in the north. And the language he uses, it doesn't come across as well in the English, but man, these are jacked up people. They, they had nothing. I don't know if you've traveled to other parts of the world. When we say poor in America, we don't know poor. When you see poor in other parts of the world, you have seen poverty. I've had people, the poor here in America, refuse things I've donated because they were slightly used. That's not poor, man. That's poor here. But when you see that kind of poor, you begin to understand the picture of these people. But out of that genuine destitute poverty, something unexpected welled up. What, they, what he says is overflowing joy and rich generosity bubbled up out of that suffering so that they were so anxious to give to this call for help. Now, for the people in the south in Corinth reading this, they thought of the people in the north as unsophisticated hicks. It's funny that in every country, there's some region that everyone else in the country thinks, oh, those are the yokels. We, you know, they talk funny. They don't have much sophistication. They don't have too much book learning, you know. Every country has that, and that's how the South felt about the North. So it was especially painful to hear that the yokels up North who are poor had already outdone us in the South, and the shame and conviction must have been pretty intense. It's interesting, when you look at studies that try to measure, in proportion to your income, which groups in a culture give the most. In the developed countries like the United States, consistently, year after year, The poor always outgive the rich. That's a very strange observation, isn't it? That the people who have the least money are proportionally always the most generous. Why do you think that is? There's a lot of theories, but I think one of the driving things is our pain helps us to identify with the pain of other people. The rich have never really known in most cases, although they've forgotten what it meant to be without. And so when they see the slides, they hear the stories, it's this theory removed from experience. But when the poor hear about the other poor, they exactly know what those people are going through. And so if we want to see a generous spirit rise in us, we've got to learn to pay attention to our pain and invite God to use that pain redemptively. I believe pain is like a fork in the road, isn't it? You stand there at the fork, and on one path is the path to bitterness and anger. And on the other path is the redemptive path to healing and compassion. People make that choice every day. Will I let my pain shape in me greater compassion or greater bitterness at the world? And everywhere around you, you look, you see both expressions very much alive and well. God is calling us in our pain to embrace it in front of him so that he can transform it redemptively into compassion rather than bitterness. 
So you want to know who God may be sending you to in order to be generous to. Think about your own pain. If you come from a broken family, do you have any idea how many other people behind you come from broken families? And they need that special understanding which you have that those who came from perfect families will never understand. Pay attention to your pain and it will start to show you what God wants to do through you. Here's another principle of a generous spirit. That a generous spirit, its attitude is that it does as much as it can. As much as it can. Look at what it says in verses 3 to 4. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able. You know, over the years of being a pastor, I've had a lot of conversations with people at church about the tithe. And it usually goes something like this. Does the New Testament require Christians to give 10% as a tithe? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never had that conversation with someone who is annoyed that it was too low and they're trying to give more and they wanted some biblical mandate to give more. It was always somebody who's going, dang, that seems awfully high. Is there any way we could renegotiate the interpretation? That's usually how it goes because that's our spirit, isn't it? We're rarely chomping at the bit to do more. We're always dealing with what is the minimum obligation I'm under. The amount the Macedonians gave would not probably have been earth-shattering by the standards of the day. People would have said, well, that's a, that's a nice gesture. But for those people, proportionally, it represented an enormous sacrifice. I think that's why they had to earnestly beg and plead with Paul to take the gift. You can imagine Paul's position. He sees these people living in garbage dumps, poor as dirt, and they're going, this is everything, and then some. Would you take it and give it to those starving people in Jerusalem? And Paul's going, if I take this from you, you're going to starve. I can't. That's too much. Do you know what you're doing? Why don't you keep half and I'll take the... I'm sure he was going through that, and that's why they had to go, no, no, Paul, we know what we're doing. We're begging you, take this and let us help. I, didn't you question that when you read, why are they begging with Paul, why was he fighting them? Because it was such a proportionally large gift that he was concerned they would fall and to ruin themselves. That kind of joyful and extravagant generosity will never take place in our lives unless there is a radical shift in the way that we assign value to things. In the old world, in the old life we had before Christ, we valued everything by dollar amounts or beauty or power or whatever other economic scale that we agreed with. But after Christ, he begins to teach us how to value everything differently, the same way that someone who is terminally ill starts to look at money differently when someone says, I have a life-saving cure, but it's really expensive. If I give it to you, you'll live, but you'll be poor forever. That person has received a radical shift in the way money and value are assigned. He goes, I don't care if I'm poor. If that means I'll be alive, give it to me. I'll cut my right arm off to get that medicine because my whole valuation system has completely changed. We will never become truly generous to God and his work and his people, unless that shift in the way we value things happens. And what Jesus teaches is that that shift takes place when a person hears the gospel, sees Jesus Christ as their king, and then finally understands what an immense treasure we have already received through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Before, money was money for lots of little things, but he has now found something of such immeasurable value. 
that nothing else matters quite as much. And until that moment happens in our lives, these kinds of messages about generosity will grate on you like a, a pebble in your shoe. It will irritate and annoy your spirit, won't it? I think it's, it's worth mentioning, too, that they gave even beyond their ability. Well, if you're already feeling crappy, I, this is, I've just kicked it up and actually, that not only did they give as much as they could, but hey, they went even beyond that. Bam, like Emerald would say, let's kick it up a notch. You know what I think that's saying? That they, when they gave this gift very alert and knowingly, they didn't maintain their status quo. They didn't say, well, this is our baseline standard of living and we'll give you out of the margins. What they said was, this is going to hurt us. It won't kill us. We'll still survive, but it's gonna, it's, we're going to feel this one. It's going to impact the chosen lifestyle that we have. Now, when you're poor and you go to a little poorer, it's not that dramatic. But man, for, for many people who are s- surrounded by comfort, it's a very threatening idea that God may call us to give in a way that actually causes us to reassess our lifestyle. It makes it clear in verse 13 that the goal is not to just trade places and we become poor while they become rich. He's not trying to ruin us as we rescue others. But here's the challenge. Are you willing to give in response to God in such a way that you would reevaluate your chosen standard of living? Jeannie and I have been going back and forth for about two, three months about striking while the iron is hot in this real estate market. We're never going to be able to upgrade the size of our home as inexpensively as we can now. But last night we had really a defining conversation in our marriage and we landed at a place that I feel so much better about. And it flowed out of the writing of this sermon and out of the fact that God has knit our hearts together in real unity. And that is one of the greatest joys of my life is that my wife and I don't fight about this stuff. We, the Lord brings us to unity and so thankful for that. So that we're reevaluating our lifestyle at a point where we could ratchet up. We're really questioning, is that what we should do? And I'm so thankful that in God's word, he's given us a guideline, not just guilt, but vision for how we can answer that question. Let me give you a third principle. A generous spirit starts in the family. I won't dwell on this because it's fairly parenthetical in the text, but I don't know when else I'll be able to make this important point. You notice it says entirely on their own, the Macedonians urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this what? Service to who? The saints. We've got to keep in mind that this is a call from suffering Christians to all other Christians in the world. Help us. And so this is an inter-family memorandum. This is all within the family of Christ followers. One group saying to another, in, under the banner of our Heavenly Father, will you help us the way family helps family? And the answer resoundingly was, yes, you are family. We will help you. You know, the, the Bible does call us to care generally for the poor. That's important. But far greater than that is an emphasis on our high responsibility to care for each other in the Christian family. I know that sounds a little self-serving and insular, but it's not really. What God says to us is, if you don't know how to take care of your own family first, then what is truly motivating you to go outside of your family and help others? I don't want to be the dinner guest in a home where a man feeds me and starves his own children. Do you hear that? Our genuine care for our own family to whom we are connected by blood and spirit 
is the measure of the genuineness of our care for anyone. Otherwise, I wouldn't trust that generosity. Why are you so bent on reaching the starving masses out there when you ignore the plight of your own family? Now, here, there's a strategic component to that as well. I really believe that there is a, an advantage to helping fellow Christians. Because whereas in many other places, people apart from Christ will eat and then just go on, we know that the, the mandate of Christ on us as Christians is that when we are blessed, we will bless others. And so when we invest in our fellow Christians all over the world who are bearing a heavy burden, who are suffering, as we bless them, they will bless their community. It's a multiplicative, it's harder to say, investment. I learned that in a very dramatic way when I was in Uganda a couple, about, how long was it? Three, I don't know, it's all melting together. Recently, I was in Uganda and I met this gentleman. His name is Pastor Emmanuel Gatera. And he comes from a country called Rwanda. And you, if you know about, from maybe you watch the film Hotel Rwanda, in the mid-90s, that nation went through the most horrific genocide where neighbors were hacking neighbors to death with machetes. People who went to the market and went to school together were murdering each other in racial hatred. And the country was devastated after that. But this man, this man, his mother was from one tribe, his father was from the other tribe. It was a big mess, and the aftermath was so much pain and hatred and anger. But by the grace of God, he is using pastors like this man to bring healing and reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ all over this pain-stricken, grief-laden nation of Rwanda. Some people say that right now, conversions to evangelical Christianity are so far on the rise that very soon it could be about 90% of the population of the whole country. Revivals are breaking out everywhere. And he journeyed very far, 16 hours or something by bus to get to this conference. And he sought me out because he just wanted to say that he was so blessed by the teaching and by what he heard. He's going back more informed and more inspired to carry on the work. And I thought, I don't know when I'm going to get to Rwanda, but if I made even one small contribution to this brother getting resources and training he could not otherwise have, imagine what God's going to do through him when he goes home. It is always a good investment to help our fellow Christians. And when the call goes out from around the world, we cannot put our, our hands over our ears and ignore it. That is why I'm so proud to be a part of this church. Your heart as a congregation for people all over the world is unbelievably great. And I want to encourage you not to lose that, but to nurture it, cultivate it, ask God to grow it all the time. It's one of the distinctives that makes me so happy and proud to be a part of this church family. Fourth principle. I'm moving fast. A generous spirit gives itself first to God. Curiously, Paul says, man, they didn't do as we expected. They zigged when I thought they were going to zag, is what Paul's saying. So what was he expecting? I think he was expecting that these poor people would see the need, and perhaps grudgingly, perhaps not, they would give some money. But even before they gave the money, he was hearing reports that the call for help started a revival in Macedonia. As people heard about the suffering of their other brothers, they were reminded that one heavenly father sits over this whole family they began to be begin presenting themselves to God in worship so that before they ever gave a dollar or whatever, denarius or something in that, that kind of, before they gave any money, they knelt before the Father and first poured out their hearts and lives to Him. 
That is just so rich. That could become a whole separate sermon. Let me summarize quickly by saying what happens as we give ourselves first to God at the feet of God? What is going on in that encounter? I think one of the things that's happening is that we're recognizing on our knees God's ownership of everything. I know this looks like my shirt. Bought it for five bucks in China. I haggled it down from 15. This is my shirt, man. I work for it. But it's not really my shirt. And that's what we're recognizing on our knees is that ownership is an illusion. There's an appearance that I own things. And if I choose to rob from God, I can make it official. But the truth of the matter is that everything I have is ultimately his. And on my knees before God in worship, what I'm acknowledging is, God, this is not me being a nice guy to some needy people and giving a portion of my money. It's me saying, this was always yours. Here, please take as much of it as you want and give it to where you want. It's not mine. My only job is to transfer it from here to there according to your will. That's what happens on our knees. A PowerPoint presentation and a missionary shedding tears and describing their broken heart for people they visited is not going to do the trick. Haven't you noticed that sometimes missions presentations leave you feeling cold? You're like, that's so great for you that you care so much about those people in that country. But me, I, don't, I just don't. It's not getting me the way it gets you. We cannot spur this kind of giving simply by inspiring people with pathetic stories of suffering. Where giving and true generosity are birth are at the feet of God in worship as we acknowledge none of this is mine. It is all yours. I am living on borrowed time. And how does that reality get pressed into us? It happens as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ. That no matter what you think you have, at, at the feet of God, it's impossible to ignore that cross. That cross that indicts us, that says, before you are ever a giver of anything... You have received more than you could ever deserve. You are already rich in Christ. You have received more so much that you should be humiliated for ever making another request. In Christ, you have been given everything. And it is only when you see that, that you can actually let go of your ownership and say, if that's really the case, and I believe it in faith, then everything else is yours, God. And until that moment of gospel understanding happens, you will always give out of guilt and obligation. Always. You will never give out of true generosity unless it is is intricately linked to your gratitude and appreciation for how rich the gospel of Jesus Christ has already made you. Do you understand that? And that is why I believe that if we're going to cultivate a spirit of generosity, the goal is not to go see the world and and experience poverty firsthand. That's a good second step. But the first step for all of us is to worship God flat on our faces, to acknowledge that he is God and that at the foot of the cross, we are rich men and women beyond imagining. That's why I think it's always dangerous to give lots of money lots of time, lots of energy when we are not spending that attendant time at the feet of God. If you're giving away a lot, but you are not spending time with God, that giving will rot your soul. It will very soon ferment into bitterness or pride. I promise that will happen. 
And so if you're giving, but you want genuine generosity to be cultivated in your spirit, the only way to do that is to make sure that as you give, you first and consistently give yourself to God. Are you with me? Let me give you one last principle, and then we'll wrap up. And that's simply this. It's not an earth-shattering point, but listen. A generous spirit keeps its promises. Have you found that it's a lot easier to call into a, a phonathon and make a pledge than it is to actually pay on it? It's much easier to buy something at the store with a piece of plastic than it is to send your check when the statement comes in the mail, right? I mean, look, that's the way life works. Making promises is so much easier than keeping them. Married people, can I get an amen? I promise to blah, blah, blah. It's so easy on your wedding day in your beautiful dress and your fancy tux. I'm going to keep... It's so hard to follow through on the things that we... But you know, the thing is, those promises we make are made earnestly at the moment. We really do mean them because so often the wind of God's spirit catches us and our sails are open and we hear him, we see him, we feel him. And the conviction is so powerful and so real that before we can stop ourselves, our mouth speaks. Yes, I will, God. I'm I'm so moved by this. I'm going to do something. But here's what happens. If you don't promptly follow through, life will start to make that voice, that conviction, quieter and quieter in your soul. How many things did you feel when you were young? Some of you are still young. Everything just feels so, right? Like you feel anger, lust, hope, vision, all that. Everything is so powerful in you. Even when you're mad, you are way madder than your age and place in life warrants, right? I mean, Look at a teenager get mad. You're a kid. What do you have to be so mad about? But man, are they mad. Because when you're young, you feel everything. And we think, well, that was when I was younger. Now I'm more reasonable. No, it's not that at all. You don't lose your capacity to hold the convictions of God as you get older. In fact, that capacity is actually growing. But what happens is we open the front door of our life and say, let every other thing come in just as equally important as God's voice. This world shouts at us, and we let God's voice stand equal to all those other voices. We don't seek him on our knees. We don't pray. We don't search his word. We just walk through life like zombies and wonder why it's so hard to follow through on the things that God moves our hearts to do. Haven't you found that the most effective way to carry out a promise you have is to begin keeping it the minute you make it? to do something tangible, concrete as your next step to say, here's my bookmark. Just like when I tell my younger brother as a kid, I'm going to eat that cookie, I lick it. Ah. That little act is my way of saying, oh, don't make no mistake, this is not an idle promise. I'm going to eat that cookie and no one else is going to eat it. It's mine. You've got to lick that cookie in your life. It's a very strange sentence in a sermon, but you've got to lick that cookie. When you make a promise... You need to find some way to move your hands and feet in response right away. Do something so that the convictions God gave you are followed through on. Because the truth is, man, the the Corinthians had way beaten the Macedonians in coming to the battle early, making the loudest promises, but the Macedonians had far outpaced them in actually doing what they said. Follow through matters. It matters a great deal to God. Let me conclude with this. 
You know, at Harvest, you're going to hear a lot of invitations to give to something, aren't you? I mean, today, how many things have pulled at your heart? You're like, oh, Lord, okay, the water's edge, and then the homeless, and then the North Korean refugees, and and every week it seems like something else is paraded before you that says, do you see our world? How many opportunities there are to stand with God and care with him about things that are important? But at some point, if there's not a parallel work in your heart, all of these announcements are going to start getting really irritating, and you're going to go to another church just to shut us up. Dang, those people, every week is something. I hope, though, that you will never grow weary of hearing God's invitation for you to be his hands and feet. Because, in fact, that is one of the great privileges of our lives. We are the physical expression of God in this world. And listen to what Jesus said. From everyone who has been given much, much is going to be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Here's the trick, though. We don't measure whether we've been given or entrusted with much by comparing ourselves to one another. Because right now in this room, there's somebody who is such a baller. His wealth makes you feel like you should be outside ringing a bell in front of Kmart begging for money. Okay? If you compare yourself to your fellow American, you will always spiral into discontent and envy. You can't help it. I'm driving down the road. I'm a pastor, so let me just get real with you for a minute. I'm a pastor, but I'm also a car guy. I love cars. And when I park at a red light next to a convertible Bentley, something just really stirs in me like, dang, it's so beautiful. And even if I had the money, I could never buy that. And I just look at it and go, ah. If you look at the world around you in America, you will always find yourself unsatisfied, envious, ambition-driven. So here's what I did. I logged on to this website called the Global Rich List. It crunches a bunch of data and spits out a number. You put in your gross income. It tells you where you rank in the nation's, in, in the world's rich list. I'm proud to announce, no, no bragging, but you know, a little respect here. I'm the 46 millionth, 688,821st richest dude on the planet. My respect. That's, it wasn't easy, okay? Now, I'm, I'm 44 millionth, there's 46 millionth in line. That doesn't impress you that much, but do you realize there's like six and a half billion people on the planet? That puts me in the top 0.77%, not even 1%. I'm higher than the top 1% of the wealthiest people on this planet. Let me let that sink in for a second. Because how many of you walked into church thinking, dang, our pastor's, he's loaded. That dude, I feel so envious when I'm around him. None of you walked in feeling like that, did you? I'm standing here as your pastor going, I, a lot of you guys have more money than me. A lot of you. And yet I, I am in the top 0.77% of global wealth. That boggles my mind. It completely changes the picture for me of how I interpret this verse. You see, I believe that more has been entrusted to us than our minds will ever calculate or understand. And if you can complain, it's because your eyes are clearly fixed on the wrong place. 
I wish you would all go to the site and write that global, how hard is it? Globalrichlist.com. Put your gigantic six, seven figure number in there and see what happens. See what happens. You would be astounded to understand finally in hard facts and numbers how much has truly been entrusted to you. When I'm wealthier than 99 out of 100 other citizens of this planet, should God not look at me and say, Dave, I expect something from you. You can't just upgrade and upsize and enjoy life and go on vacation and completely ignore the fact that you sit on top of a mountain of people and you are at the very tip of that iceberg in privilege and blessing. You can't just ignore that and go, thanks, God, awesome. Where should we eat? After a while, that kind of truth has to bother you to action. It has to be laid at the feet of God and your complaining needs to stop and you need to give yourself as an offering to God and say, I don't I can't do everything, but I know that I've got to do much because so much was entrusted to me. I recently learned that for the price of my iPad, I could have purchased something like 150 acres of apple trees in Guatemala for farmers to earn a living for generations. That really messed me up. So I, I stopped thinking about the iPad and started thinking about my children's school registration fee instead because it made me feel too guilty. But I think we need to understand this. So much has been given to us. And someday we will stand before God and make an accounting for our choices. And that's not said to make you feel guilty, but to make you realize how blessed you are to live here to know that when you just finally wake up and decide to work hard, you can realize so many opportunities. That's not something everyone else has. And I hope that God will use this message to stir something deep inside of you. That we cannot be idle in cultivating this spirit of generosity as we stand before our God. Can we just bow together in prayer? You know, it's a good practice for preachers that before we stand at the mic and tell others, we have preached the message through the Holy Spirit to ourselves. And I need to tell you that this particular sermon really messed me up. But it's also bearing fruit. And I'm really hoping that it will help you think about why you walk through life maybe with so much anxiety and discontent, why everything for you is framed in terms of what makes you unhappy, what you don't have, what you're missing, what you lack, what you never had. I, I pray that we would sit at the feet of Christ today and he would deliver us from that constant dwelling on what is not. And he would remind us that I have made you so rich in the heavenly realms. You have no idea. And even in the material sense, you have more than so many others. Will you now hand your heart over to God and say, you know what? Everything I have is yours. Do 
do something. I am at your disposal. I want to be your servant. I hope that God will do that as we sit for a couple minutes and just be quiet before him. So let's do that and let him speak to us. You know, right at this moment, I really believe that God is moving in this room. Not everyone feels him. Some of us right now, we really do. And there's kind of this excitement, but also this desire that that voice would stop talking because it's troubling you. It's going to change things. Listen, yield to that voice. It's God's voice. And if he's laying something on your heart, stay a moment, dwell there. Make a promise to the Lord in your heart, something that you will do right now, the minute the service is over, before you go out to lunch and become reasonable once again. If God is moving you, then be moved. So I'd like to give us another minute just to do that. Let's pray together. Lord God, if we choose to, there will always be something to drive us to complain. To be sorrowful. But Lord, bring us before you today. In your presence, at your feet, all complaining disappears. All envy perishes. And all we know is that we are already so rich because of Jesus Christ. Rescue all of us, Lord, from the pointless journey of self-pity and complaining. And set our feet on, on a path where we see your glory as we become your hands and feet. You have given so much to us. And whether we've known it or not, you have always expected so much from us. At your feet, prepare us now to give you ourselves as a gift. Thank you for this church. For my brothers and sisters here who have in the last decade and a half so capably demonstrated that we hear your voice and that we want to release our grip on worldly things. Lord, now come and powerfully lead us to finish that work in our lifetimes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.